This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dajani. Jamal, we have a great show today. There's so much to cover. I mean, with the bombshell uh, investigative reporting about the Pandora Papers, it has just opened up a Pandora's box of uh, corruption, abuse, financial abuse, and essentially the looting of various countries' uh, banks for the private good of individuals. And it's implicated a lot of uh, U.S. allies in the Middle East, not the least of which, and this is the person that's gotten the most attention, has been, you know, King Abdullah of Jordan and... Uh, we're going to be speaking, or you'll be speaking, we'll all be hearing from Daoud Kutab, who's a journalist living in Jordan, who will give us an update of the bombshell you know, implications of this. But I think it's important to realize why are certain people and kingdoms, specifically whether it's UAE or the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and MBS getting a pass, should be a very interesting discussion. You're right, Jess, uh, but... Just a word of caution, the bombshell is not as big of a bombshell in the Middle East. Just, just it, it is, and also you've, you've talked about the Middle East, but it's all over. Europe, the UK, Tony Putin. Blair, yeah, you know, everybody. the Pandora Papers, just to remind our listeners, which we will be talking to journalist Dahoud Kutab, is a leak of almost 12 million documents. So... This is the tip of the iceberg, which reveals basically hidden wealth, tax avoidance, and in some cases, money laundering by some of the world's rich and uh, most powerful. Yes. And after that, we have to, um, we're going to be speaking about uh, Jamal Khashoggi. You know, it's been three years, you know, after his brutal uh, murder at the hands of what everybody knows and believes to be. Mohammed bin Salman, the you know crown prince of Saudi Arabia, soon to be king, and we should talk about why he gets a pass. Just not just on the Pandora Papers, but legally, why he gets a pass. We'll be talking about Bristol University professor David Miller, who was basically sacked and removed as a result of some comments that he made about the apartheid state of Israel, and. Um, to me, Jamal, I don't think we can leave today without talking about your favorite uncle, Shimon Perez, your favorite grandfather and uncle, Shimon Perez, that everybody loves, that everybody reveres as a paragon of morality, has been accused, like the rest of the so-called you know, leadership of the apartheid state, of sexual assault and abuse. So we, we should cover that, too. Yes, we have a lot to talk about, but first, here is the interview with award-winning journalist Daoud Kutab. The Pandora Papers is a leak of almost 12 million documents that reveals hidden wealth, tax avoidance, and in some cases, money laundering by some of the world's rich and powerful. The data obtained by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ, in Washington, D.C., which has been working with more than 140 media organizations on its biggest ever global investigation. 
Joining us to discuss this and more, Dahoud Kutab. Dahoud is a Palestinian journalist, a media activist, and a columnist for Palestine Pulse. He's a former Ferris professor of journalism at Princeton University and is currently Director General of Community Media Network, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to advancing independent media in the Arab region. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Dawood. Thank you. So more than 600 journalists in 117 countries have been trawling through these files from 14 sources for months, finding uh, stories that are still being published. This is a big story here in the United States. Uh, Did it have the same impact in the Middle East? No. It had an impact, but I don't think it had the same impact. Uh, um, countries uh, in our region are very good at uh, keeping information from their own public. And, um, you know, obviously social media and Internet and others have uh, weakened this uh, grip on on the national news. But but countries are still able to to control not only the information, but also the uh, framing of the information. So this case uh, that involves uh, the Jordanian uh, monarch has been framed in a way or has been explained away in a way that uh, has not had the kind of effect that one would expect from uh, another place. Well, I mean, there is so much uh, information in these leaks and, and, and it will be impossible to cover all of them or even part of them in this interview. Uh, there is the Qatari uh, ruling family, according to the information, uh, which avoided uh, 18.5 million sterling pounds in tax on a London supermansion. Then, of course, uh, uh, stories, multiple stories about Tony Blair, the former UK prime minister, uh, who became owner of an $8.8 million Victorian building in 2017 by buying it through a uh, British Virgin Islands company uh, that held the property and was owned by a, the uh, family, the royal family in Bahrain uh, and um, partner Zayed bin Rashid al-Zayani. And then, of course, Lebanon's billionaire prime minister, uh, Najib Mikati, uh, also is mentioned there while the country is embroiled in a wrenching financial crisis. Then you mentioned uh, King Abdullah of Jordan and what they're saying it's uh, uh, £70 million spending spree on properties in the UK and US uh, through secretly owned companies. Now, I was reading in uh, in Jordan that... uh, Basically, there was a, uh, a press statement saying, acknowledging that there were these purchases, but it's just like basically they de- uh, they denied impropriety about these purchases. I mean, is that is that the official position in Jordan? Yes, as I said, the the state media and most of the media, in fact, almost all the media did not report on this case on the first day, on uh, the first day it was published. But the second day, uh, the royal court issued a long statement, actually, in which they, um, as you said, acknowledged that uh, His Majesty the King, like his father and probably his grandparents, owned lots of properties around the world. They said that they they do it, uh, they keep it secret because uh, for security reasons, 
And that uh, the most important thing they said in that statement was that uh, never has any money been used from donor money or from the coffers of the government, that this was privately owned, private money that the king and his family has inherited, has owned. You know, the Hashemites used to own prime property in Mecca and Saudi Arabia, and, you know, over the years they've been selling it. And so... Um, for many people, $160 million is a lot of money, but at the same time, for the rich, it's it's not that big of an amount. Well, this is actually the important question, and that's why I'm actually talking to you about it. When it came out, this story, in, in the headlines, the Washington Post and others, King Abdullah was prominent, you know, along, and, and if you, if as you've mentioned, $160 million is nothing... In, in this context, when 106, we talk, 106, 106, 106 is, 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 is very little. And when we talk about the billions of dollars that are invested, let's say, the Saudis they have in the United States, in, in, in England, and, you know, it kind of rose, it, it kind of made me wonder why uh, the media, in particular in the United States, decided to name King Abdullah rather than MBS or name the uh, um, the ruling family in, 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 in the UAE and Bahrain. Do you feel it has anything to do politically, let's say, for example, with a shift, uh, let's say opening the borders uh, with Syria? Does that have anything you know, to do with it? I, I don't, you know, I'm um, I'm not a conspiratorial thinker. And uh, the uh, as you said, this uh, information has been around with journalists for more than six months. So the issue of Syria was not available at that time. And yes, the timing now appears to be connected. But I don't think that when the uh, journalists decided and the uh, organization in Washington decided six months ago that they would publish this on October 3rd, that they actually knew that on October 3rd, the, the borders between Jordan and Syria would open. I don't think that is the case. I think what made it um, sexy, what made it attractive is that they tried to, to connect between uh, U.S. And public money and donor money to Jordan and the fact that Jordan is a very poor country with a very high level of unemployment. The optics of that is very big. When you talk about the Saudi Arabia, it's a rich country and the money is, is available to people and nobody questions that the money is public money. They consider, you know, these people to be rich, very rich, and therefore the fact that they're avoiding to pay taxes anyway, they don't pay taxes in their own country, the royalty. So it's not a big story. So I think uh, they they did uh, like that kind of a comparison. My problem with that story is that they did not uh, cross the T's and, and dot the I's on the donor money. They did not show that this $106 million that he used actually came from uh, the American people or from the Jordanian people or from anybody other than the private or private wealth of, of the family. And I think that's where they were uh, a bit sloppy or maybe even uh, unfair by, by hinting that this is taken from the donor money, even without saying that. They're saying, by the way, you know, Jordan gets $1.5 billion every year in donor money, and the king has 106 
million dollars of properties. They don't say that they take the money takes, but it gives that impression. And I think this was a dishonest piece. This this juxtaposition was dishonest. But generally, the problem in in the Middle East is that our media is totally controlled by governments and even the private media, even the independent media are under a lot of control. Our organization uh, published the uh, the Pandora box related to, to King Abdullah and it lasted for three hours. That's how long we were allowed to keep it on before all help, you know, came on to pressure us to take it off or else. And, and so, um, some journalists practice self-censorship from the point, first point, didn't even publish it. Others, uh, you know, wavered. But in the end, the public did not get to know the story, even though they heard the admission later the next day. But they didn't actually hear what actually they were talking about. Which adds more mystery to the story if you have nothing to worry about instead of creating, you know, opening the, uh, you know, the forum, let's say, to debate it and talk about it, and then people will be rest assured that there was nothing wrong with it. But you were spot on when you said the, about talked about the optics because I was reading actually, and this is this is a quote from uh, Reuters and the way they presented. Uh, they said on Monday, Abdullah denied any impropriety in his purchase of luxury homes abroad. The allegations come as Abdullah seeks international aid to pull his impoverished country out of recession and could unsettle Jordan's critical relationship with the international community. So they connect the the aid to that and make you think as if he's using the aid to purchase properties in right. the United States. And right, right. This is the problem of uh, the juxtaposition and the uh, uh, the way that uh, the framing, we call it in the journalism, the framing, they framed the story, they had a storyline that is attractive, to be honest. I mean, you look at a king with lots of money and his people are poor. You know, why isn't he spending money on his people? And it's true. I mean, that that is a, a fact. Uh, but I think... It's it's the the impression and the innuendo is much bigger than the reality. And I'm going to give you another example, also from another story. I think this was through, uh, I think, the Washington Post. And then they connected. They say in early 2021, a perpetrated uh, coup concocted by Prince Hamza, King Abdullah II's half-brother, alongside Basim Awadullah, a former chief of the Royal Hashemite Court, whom many Jordanians despised due perceived corruption, was thwarted. So they throw in another story which has nothing to do with this and then they throw the word corruption in it so again that's how they create that like you said the sensationalization i was like to tell you the truth i was really surprised about why they decided to hone in on king abdullah that's why i wanted to talk to you about it you know the you know the uh, american media and especially let's call it the liberal american media has been very tough on trump and they were very strongly uh, sympathetic to Biden. And they, I think they feel that they might have gone a little bit overboard and they're trying to self-correct. And so you saw that they, not only are they tough on, on the king, but they've also been recently very tough on, on Biden and on, on his policies and so on. And they're giving uh, the Trump and his people a, a, a kind of a, uh, a wink, you know, they're letting them go because they realize that, you know, they need to 
do what they, whatever you call it, the balance, the, the fake balance that they wanted to talk about. So I think, I think it's unfortunate for the king that this happened at the time. And actually, the same day that this, uh, uh, these leaks were published is the day that the king received the reform document from the, uh, the royal commission, which actually is quite good. I mean, there is really some really good uh, items in that reform, both on the uh, ending a lot of the gerrymandering in many of the big cities that favored, you know, certain uh, Jordanians of Palestinian, of Jordanian, East Bank Jordanians against Jordanians of Palestinian origin. And it gave much more power to parties and, and raised the uh, the threshold to so that we will have really serious parties. We will have national parties now, about 41 seats out of the 130 to be elected on the national slates. So there are things going in the right direction. You know, they're saying it's going to take 10 years for the whole system to become a, a parliamentary monarchy. But in the in the meantime, uh, this is, uh, you know, this is the second blow within one year that, that has really shaken up the palace and, and, uh, and the king's attempt to try to get out of the COVID in a way that allows the country to get back on its feet. What about this opening the borders with uh, uh, Syria? This is just on, on, on a different topic. I mean, I, I, I believe this is a, a major move. I mean, here uh, Bashar al-Assad calls the king to thank him about this. And uh, I think it's a departure from, uh, you know, the prior policy uh, just to now will change basically the equation vis-a-vis -vis Syria uh, trade, uh, it's another, um, you know, way for the Syrians now who have been suffering for years under this uh, economical crisis and basically they can have a route through Jordan for trade and people and commerce and people coming and going. Well, you know, it started with the, uh, the crisis in Lebanon because the Lebanese were having a hard time getting gas and, elect and electricity. And so uh, when the King Abdullah visited the White House, he sought and succeeded in getting a waiver on what is called the Caesar Law. Caesar Law says anybody who deals economically with the Bashar Assad government will be boycotted and will pay, uh, you know, will be, be sanctioned. And so the king asked for a waiver because Jordan and Syria are neighbors and Jordan, uh, the same way they, they sought a waiver during the oil for uh, food program with Iraq, that, that they cannot survive without the ability to trade uh, with Syria and via Syria. So Biden and his administration gave them that waiver. And once that waiver was, uh, you know, implemented, Jordan was able to sell electricity. Jordan has like two gigabytes or whatever of electricity that they don't need. They have actually they produce more electricity than they need. And uh, Lebanon has less electricity than they need. And so it, was, it made sense to fix up the, the pylons in Syria and get the electricity from Jordan via Syria to Lebanon. And the same with the Egyptian gas that, you know, was flowing for a long time from Egypt to Jordan, now can go from Egypt to Jordan to Syria to Lebanon. So uh, these things are, uh, you know, a good sign for, for pan-Arab cooperation and so on. And uh, Jordan, which has suffered a lot because of the closure of the borders with Iraq and then with Syria, uh, 
can start breathing a little bit. I've been talking to hotel owners, I've been talking to taxi drivers, and they're starting to feel things are moving. And people who have not worked for a while are starting to get jobs and starting to get business. Hotels, occupancy rates are going up. So things are starting to turn in a positive way. And then this thing happens. And I think uh, that's also why people, I think, are not going to give it much attention because they really want the economy to improve. People are really concerned about the economy, about the price of oil, about the price of bread, about the ability to find jobs for their kids. And uh, they are not paying so much attention to, to a lot of the politics. So at the end of the day, you think this whole thing about the Pandora is just going to pass very quickly. It's not going to affect... Uh, policies in, in, in Jordan, and, and people are more focused about their well-being and, and their economy, right? I hope it. I hope it. I hope it can fix the one problem that I think is clear now is the media. I think it's clear that Jordan's media needs revamping, and I think they need to really open up and to stop these silly games of trying to put steel uh, walls in a, in a world that <laughs> is totally uh, you know, open and information is going in all directions. Well, how do you think now? I mean, now is Jordan coming out of the COVID or are you still having a problem? Is that, how has that been affecting the economical situation there? No, I think they've done a good job with the COVID. Most people have have taken the uh, the, the two vaccines. Some people have taken the, the booster vaccine, especially those who took the uh, the Chinese and the other vaccines. And uh, you know, early on, they created that uh, golden triangle between Aqaba and Wadi Ram and Petra. And they really, the few people who lived there were all vaccinated and nobody was allowed in unless they were vaccinated. So tourism started picking up in Petra area. And now the whole country is opening up and the airports are opening up. Still, you know, you need to be vaccinated to leave or to come and or to have uh, negative uh, PCR results. But uh, there are a number of hospitalizations, the uh, positivity rate uh, on uh, is quite low and uh, the ICU units are not as full as they were before. So I think it's, yeah, they seem to have good control over it. Dahoud Kutab, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Hala Jamal, take care. Take care. That's the voice and the face of Dahoud Kutab, uh, award-winning journalist uh, from the Middle East. You know what, Jamal? He's exactly right. You're exactly right. This is not a big deal in the middle. I mean, isn't it pretty much known? I won't say accepted, but uh, maybe accepted that uh, rulers, leaders in the Middle East will will take money from state coffers and, and kind of use it for their personal gain. That's always happened. So it's really not a big deal, I guess. It's not a big deal in the Middle East, and also there is the problem of reporting about it in the Middle East. Uh, the Hood tab talks about actually the censorship that is uh, right. the crackdown that's going on in Jordan and, of course, in other countries. The thing that jumped to my attention when when this broke first broke, uh, the Washington Post published it, Reuters, AP, everyone else is the prominence of King Abdullah II of Jordan in the headline. Yes, he's the poorest guy in the bunch. <laughs> I mean, if That's we're right. talking about, you right. know, I mean, is, is it a big surprise to say that the Saudis 
on properties in Beverly Hills, New York City, London, Paris, the south of France, multi-million dollar yachts, private jets. Hey, you're going to tell me they also have Swiss bank accounts. Is that going to surprise you? No, of course not. So so he is the poorest one in in the bunch. And and we know since his father, King uh, Hussein, he had property in the United States. He had property in uh, in, in, in the, the UK, in, the UK, in, in right. London, and so on. And the and the figure that they have for him is like about a hundred million dollars and change, which is nothing in today's wealth. When it's you have much. the billionaires and the zillionaires, this is peanuts. So two things which actually uh, the hood spoke about, which I ac- actually I, I appreciate it. One, because I was like trying to think, what's the timing of this? Because King right. Abdullah of Jordan just opened the borders with Syria. And he said, no, 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 because this has been in the planning uh, weeks ago. And, and, and also they worked on, on, on uncovering these documents months. So th- there is no connection. But then why is the connection all of a sudden, instead of saying MBS or the Emir of, uh, of Qatar or the Emir, you know, to name him, I think that's sensationalization because yes. of the recent, for example, coup by his uh, brother or uh, half-brother. But most importantly, because Jordan receives U.S. aid, and Correct. international aid. Correct. There's all these kind of, oh, you know, they have tons of money, billions and billions of money. Fine, they can they can siphon the country dry. Would give them a pass, even though they've they've been mentioned. They've mentioned the Qataris. They've mentioned others. So that's uh, that's the kind of the game. But I think the the most important thing of the story is that. I don't know what the media ganged up on on King Abdullah, aside from sensationalization, aside from trying to show that difference. Like his his he gets he's waiting to get uh, U.S. aid and so forth. Let's ruin it for him. That he's been actually beaten. Uh, I mean, he had other scandals like with, with a coup. So there is. It's an unfair, I think, in my well, opinion. Yeah, I agree. But I have I have one theory. I mean, it's not so it's not so much a theory, Jamal. It's more of an observation. Is that the wealth disparity in Jordan between the the royal family and the king and everybody else is perceived, whether or not it's in reality, extreme, but it's perceived that Jordan has one of the poorest, you know, GDPs uh, per capita uh, ratios of GDP. I mean, the poverty level in Jordan, the numbers of Palestinian refugees, the number of Syrian refugees, just the poverty level is so great that the disparity, uh, discrepancy uh, between the you know, just how terrible the living conditions are for so many people in Jordan and the fact that the king of Jordan would, you know, buy this property in, in Southern California on the beach and, you know, have well, all these you know, properties. I, I disagree just because the, the, it's all about perception. Right. And it's we the have the perception that Saudis are all doing well. It's only a minority of the Saudis who are. In fact, for example... Health in in uh, services in Jordan is very good. Education uh, education is, is superb in Jordan compared to other Arab countries. Saudi Arabia, you have areas they don't have 
infrastructure, Jess. That's We've seen a few years ago when they had floods. Those right. are the ones, the fat cats that we all see. We assume that everyone is doing really well in Saudi Arabia and, of course, other countries, you know. Uh, Gaddafi well, like, had billions of dollars outside when I sure. went to Libya. Uh, you know, some parts of Libya did not have paved roads. You know, and well, so that's why that's why I think it's a perception issue. I, I'm, that's all I'm saying is that the the way the way it can be portrayed, it's a little easier to paint the perception of the wealth disparity in Jordan than other countries because you're and you're exactly right. The wealth disparities in you in all the Gulf countries. Is, is great too. It's, I mean, the wealth is in a very few hands. But the pictures of, 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 um, and the images of poor health and desperate living con- conditions with all of the camps in Jordan right now, it, it's easier to paint that uh, picture for the king of Jordan than it may be in other places. But I have a question for you. What about Sisi? Sisi has stole, um, billions of dollars and Egyptian dis, you know, wealth disparities are are very extreme, maybe even more extreme than in Jordan. Why was Sisi off the list? I don't know. I mean, it's the, it, I haven't gone through the whole list. And let's put it this way. We should worry about the ones who have not been mentioned in the list because they are the smartest. And they're the ones that kept their, basically, loot right. away from, the, from scrutiny. Right. Well, You're I also... listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. We should move uh, to another topic, Jess, because it's very important. Do you want to talk Three about... Yeah, ha- it's... ...have passed since the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And really, no one has been brought... No one has paid basically for for what happened to him. Well, that's it's, not entire. That's not entirely true, as you and I both know. Some some people have been, you know, thrown under the bus and lost their and are in jail and in prison in Saudi Arabia by MBS. You know, uh, you know, as scapegoats, obviously. But in the broader international arena of human rights and international law, basically, the Saudis and MBS have gotten away literally with murder. No one has held them accountable. The United States, the EU, um, the ICC, no one has been able to hold MBS. Even though the United States intelligence services, Jamal, implicated MBS directly in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, he's gotten away with murder. Well, that's what I was going to say, really, the ones who were behind the murder, who gave the order, not some push button, you know, like go and do the the job we we know. And and some of them actually, the ones who were involved, like, you know, we heard that they were fired from the job or given sentences, but we don't know if these sentences were basically applied because, you know, in Saudi Arabia, there is the death penalty. So if you murder, you immediately pretty much doesn't take a long time for you to be to get beheaded really in Saudi Arabia. So so uh, just a slap on the wrist is not what I say bringing people to justice for someone who was taken right at the Saudi embassy in Turkey and chopped terribly 
to 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 death. So the recent news, couple of recent news, because of the on the third anniversary, you know, two things are happening, and I think in two countries who are very much allied with Saudi Arabia, the UK and the United States. The United right. States, uh, we we spoke last week. The United States are, are just pretty much approved uh, more military weapons sale to Saudi Arabia in the range between 400 and 500 million dollars and um, recently uh, Biden's uh, national security advisor uh, Jake Sullivan uh, he led a delegation to to the Middle East and they went to Saudi Arabia and and stopped and saw uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, MBS on September 28th basically finalizing the deal. And they had some questions about the conflict in Yemen, like they wanted. And but supposedly Jamal, there were news that they asked about Khashoggi. This it's is a, like, it's BS. asked like what happened to Khashoggi. Yes, but excuse they, me, excuse me. They don't, approved don't the deal. In, yeah, <laughs> but don't, don't insult us. Don't insult anybody with a, a, a modicum of intelligence or appreciation of those things. The very fact that Jake Sullivan and would go to Saudi Arabia legitimizes MBS. It legitimizes his, you know, brutal assault on the people of Yemen. It legitimizes his ability to murder his critics uh, like Jamal Khashoggi. And remember, uh, Jamal Khashoggi lived in the United States and just happened to be in Turkey in order to get some documents. So, let, let's let's call it what it is. It's a legitimization of a brutal, thuggish uh, regime in, in Saudi Arabia. There's no accountability here whatsoever. And I'm sad to say is that if we don't get it under the Biden administration, is there any hope or 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 Boris Johnson's you know administration? And we'll get to him in a second too. There, will there ever be any accountability for for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? There, there won't be. I'm sad to say. No, when we're talking about it now, three years later, nothing, nothing. happened. And if you fast forward four years, five years, no, no one will be talking about it. And that's no. the whole thing: is the normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia, the normalizations of. Uh, MBS as a as a world leader because he's going you know as you know he's running the country not his father, and then the other story is like I said the two major allies is, is the United Kingdom, and uh, you know we know the word uh, whitewashing we apply we we use that a lot when we talk about uh, Israel, and there is pink washing but there is now a new term called sports washing sports washing. Yes, sports washing, and that's what's happening in the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw uh, a, a, an interview just uh, yesterday uh, by uh, the widow of uh, the murdered uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, Hatis uh, Senchig, and she was pleading, pleading and horrified at the prospective that and the Newcastle United, this is a very important uh, soccer or football team in, in the UK, is going to be taken over by Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And she was urging the Premier League to not cave in and block the deal. So, so this is called, this is part of the sports washing. Amnesty International also 
called on the Premier League to focus on human rights issues and sports washing as the proposed sale of a consortium led by Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, the PIF, which, who is uh, the chair of the Public Investment Fund, Jess? MBS. Ben Salman, MBS. Yeah. They, he wants to buy uh, this uh, uh, British uh, uh, football team uh, for but a reported you, 300 million British pounds. But, but, but uh, Jamal, it's not just any British football team. It's They're part of the Premier League in the UK. They're one of the... It would it would be like MBS wanting to buy the New York Yankees or the Dallas Cowboys or something like that. It's that big of a deal that he is trying to take over one of the premier uh, UK identified uh, football clubs, you know, in in the entire in the entire United Kingdom. So it's insulting. I think the term sports washing makes perfect sense. Um, and it is. And, 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 you know, three years ago, you know, Mohammed bin Salman got away with murder. It's been three years on. He's played his cards right. He's denied everything. He's completely gotten over it. He, you know, the United States under the Biden administration will sell him more armaments. More Yemenis are being killed. There's more, there's more silencing of dissent in Saudi Arabia now than, than there was three years ago. So, we don't need any more evidence to show that this this murderer has gotten away with you know without being held accountable and the United States and the UK Jamal are complicit in the death of Jamal Khashoggi. Yes, and sadly it looks like the deal is going to go through. Of course it's uh, going to go vo- through. They're, they're voting of on course. it as we're speaking or they might might have I haven't received the results but no, it looks I'll, like I'll tell you what we the might wake up be- tomorrow and and uh, no. this football team will be owned by MBS. Of course it's going to be owned by MBS. I have breaking news for everybody. If you look at Boris Johnson, if you look at the UK government right now, um which is basically, you know, it's a right-wing party. It's a and and you know we know that from, you know, so many different things that Boris Johnson does, including his cozy relationship with the Israelis. Um, of course, MBS is going to buy this team. There's no way that Boris Johnson and his government would put up any kind of um, any stink about that. So yeah, we will see murderers and thugs get away with murder, and be able to buy football teams. Absolutely. Well, speaking of uh, Boris Johnson, a new report shows that he had five trips to Israel. Is uh, that all? Starting from November. Well, he had more. But these ones, and this is, uh, you know, that shows you about the uh, lobby's influence. These ones, as he first entered the parliament, they were all funded by the Israeli government and cons- the Conservative Friends of Israel, the CFI, a powerful Westminster lobby group which does not disclose its funders but has claimed 80% of Conservative MPs are members. And then part of this report, Jess, uh, 23 cabinet ministers that you have today uh, in, you know, in his cabinet, eight uh, of, of, sorry, of the 23 cabinet ministers, eight have been funded to visit Israel, uh, while members of the parliament, again, uh, with paid junkets and, and, and what have you. Uh, it's something 
we know that ha this happens yeah, all the time in this it's country. Not, it's not too surprising, but it seems like in the UK, it's more sh they have more cover to not disclose uh, funders and who's part of it, and they they again they can get away with it because you know the Labour Party in the UK right now, Jamal, has just been it's fragmented. You know, it's not well. You know, it's it's it its voice. It's having a hard time finding its voice in light of you know Boris Johnson's you know uh, regime right now. L and and let's say this, Jamal. Boris Johnson goes to Israel five times. It's paid by you know Israeli PAC money. But we should also talk about the fact that Boris Johnson's ability to to govern the UK in the mid in the midst of a pandemic and Bre Brexit has been a disaster. Our listeners and viewers may not know that there are significant economic uh, problems right now in the UK because there's a huge gas shortage. And they, because of Brexit, they're not able to get enough drivers to, to haul, haul gasoline and petrol and, and fuel, you know, from various places in the EU to the uh, United Kingdom. So, it is a big disaster, but he, Boris Johnson, apparently has no problem taking being influenced by the Israeli lobby in the UK. And on the same topic, yeah. uh, the Israeli lobby in the UK, since we're talking about it, a university, the University of Bristol, yeah, has sacked a sociology professor accused of anti-Semitic comments. Let's hear following his a high-profile investigation, yeah, yeah, and after Jewish students said that they felt unsafe <laughs> and unprotected on campus, did you hear this? The same thing somewhere else, Jess? Have you heard this? The uh, it's, uh, uh, unsafe it's, and unprotected. We hear it. We've heard it every day, Jamal, for decades now in the United States, and it seems like the. Israeli playbook used in the United States to attack Palestinian professors or professors who advocate for Palestinian rights, they're using the same tactics against professors in the UK. They don't feel safe. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the common denominator. So basically the university said, although they did not find that the comments or the alleged comments uh, did not constitute, and this is, I'm quoting, unlawful speech. A disciplinary hearing concluded that he did not meet the standards of behavior we expect from our staff. So if we're talking about academic freedom and you and I had multiple shows and we've had multiple, you know, we had Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi who has our own problems at San Francisco State University and uh, and Stephen Salaita, who also lost his job because right. because of a tweet, basically. And now this is the same scenario repeating itself. It's in now in uh, the UK. He, uh, Miller answered, he said the university, just to, for the record, had embarrassed itself with its decision and accused it of bowing to a pressure campaign against him directed by who else? By Israel. And, 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 and what's, what's Miller's specialty? He's a research specialist. His research just specializes in how self perpetuates through, uh, through lobbying and propaganda, like yeah, he focuses on on propaganda, yeah, yeah. etc., 
And uh, just reading from his statement that he issued, I actually tried to get him on the show, but I think he 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 is he he's appealing the decision, so he's not going to speak a lot publicly about it. But he added that it that it has run a shambolic process, meaning right. at the university process that seems to have been vetted by external external actors. Israel's assets in the UK have been emboldened by the university collaborating with them to shut down teaching about Islamophobia. The University of Bristol is no longer safe for Muslim, Arab, or Palestinian students. This is his response. Well, it's a brilliant response, Jamal, and it's the irony of ironies that Israeli or Jewish students don't feel safe on campuses when the level of anti-Arab, anti-Muslim and Islamophobic hate has been pervading campuses here in the United States and in the UK for, you know, since, you know, how many decades now? So this is the classic uh, Israeli playbook, right? Uh, it's, it's called turning the world upside down. You're the aggressor, but you accuse the people for whom you're aggressing on as being the aggressor. So it's the classic Israeli playbook. And they don't just do it at the university, Jamal. This is part of the Israeli foreign policy, right? This is part of the Hasbara campaign, and they just use it at every level. Poor little Israel, they're coming after us, they're attacking us, when in fact, Israel continues to be an occupier, continues to blockade, continues to have human rights abuses, and continues to be labeled as an apartheid state. So my question to you, Jamal, is isn't it getting a little tired to hear this now? I mean, isn't this this Hasbara campaign? It sounds a little weary now. I mean, I, I don't see how people really, I don't see how people buy it. And, you know, Professor Miller will, will appeal it. And, you know, we'll, we'll pay attention to that. Maybe we'll get him on the show. But I would suspect that he has quite a good chance of overcoming this uh, really crazy, uh, crazy uh, decision. I'll quote a very famous baseball player, deja vu all over again, But Jess. I mean, we keep seeing the same thing, the same argument. And I should say, uh, you know, they're going after him because they say his online, in an online lectures, he described Israel as the enemy of world peace. Would I describe Israel as the... <laughs> The model of world peace. I mean, what would you? What, I mean, what's wrong with this statement? Well, you know what's ironic about that, Jamal. If he said the United States is is an enemy of world peace, he, no one would have said anything. No one would have said anything, Jamal. If he had said the United Kingdom is the enemy of world peace, no one would give him a hard time. So here you have a UK professor because he. He labeled the Israeli foreign policy and its apartheid practices as an enemy of peace is losing his job when he could have made the very same comments for his, you know, for his home country as well as the United States. And no one would bat an eye. No one would care. No one would give a you know what if he said the same thing about the UK or the United States. And the silly thing, the university itself, even though they fired him. They issued a statement. They said that his words did not constitute an un, 
lawful speech. So if you are at a educational institution, just this is where you're supposed to have your freedom of speech and this is where you're supposed to have academic freedom, you cannot criticize a country like Israel and call it an enemy of peace and then you're going to get fired of it because some students go and complain to the administration saying that you've made them unsafe. Well, you know, that's why... That's why he'll appeal it. That's why we'll follow the story. And I, I, am, I, I have a sense that, you know, and again, the, the, the Israelis and the Hasbara machine never miss an opportunity to overplay their hand, Jamal. I believe they've overplayed their hand yet again. And I, I believe that this is going to bring even more attention to the corrupt Hasbara campaigns that are inflicting kind of damage to the academy all over the, you know, all over the world. I mean, you can't, we know what's happening here at San Francisco State. In fact, you know, Professor Abdul Hadi, who we've had on our show so many times, is actually in the middle of her, her kind of uh, appeal process right now. We'll be getting an update from her at some point in the, in the future. But people are tired of, and I'll just call it what it is, the bullying tactics that the Israeli Hasbara machine and his Israel supporters have, people are tired of it. And I know that people in the UK are tired of it. People here are tired of it. Um, we'll see. We're going to follow this. I think they've overplayed their hand. We'll end the show by talking about, as you described, your, oh, your favorite, favorite uncle, uncle. <laughs> or your, or your fra- favorite grandfather. Well, he, he, he passed away uh, since, but... Uh, we're talking about Shimon Peres. Everybody who, loved him. Yeah. Everybody loved him. He's a, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. He, uh, you know, everybody uh, loved him. He was huggable. Uh, your favorite big teddy uncle. bear. He was a big teddy bear. Big, another big teddy bear. And now uh, a former labor. Israeli labor MK, and who was an ambassador, by the way. Her name is Colette Avital. She had a very, very long career uh, in service, and now uh, she's 81 years old. She, she finally spoke about her, her being basically sexually harassed by him. And um, Avital recalled being invited to dine in Paris's Paris Hotel. Sounds like, uh, <laughs> I said... Uh, Weinstein, yeah, uh, you know, she was invited to dine in early 1980s uh, it, to meet him. Uh, she was in France. She's an ambassador, right? So she, uh, she was. Oh, I'm sorry, she was then part of the Israeli mission, diplomatic mission, and then when she arrived uh, to his meeting um, to go to his his room, he he was wearing his robe and pajamas. <laughs> He greeted her. Didn't you hear that story happening with Weinstein? Multiple well, times he used yeah, to invite people wine- to his hotel. Yeah, well, that's the Weinstein approach, uh, right? And the idea that, you know, it's it's so morally disgusting that you would invite anybody to your hotel room for a meeting. I mean, that's just like, come on. Yeah, he's a word, he's a word leader, and, and, and she, she is part of the diplomatic mission. So he receives her. Then he pushes her towards the bed. She resisted and left the room agitated. 
And I'm quoting, it took uh, a few seconds, she recalled, setting that then she told Paris's aide, Yossi Berlin, who was his aide at the time, that the next time his boss came to Paris, I will not be left alone with him. That's, that's one in, encounter. He repeated, in 1984, she says, after three, uh, after three years in Paris, Avital returned to Israel following Shimon Peres and the good leader Yitzhak Shemir's deal to form a unity government in rotation. She pushed for a position in the new administration, but was told that her gender would prove a barrier to advancement. Right. During one meeting after Peres has declined her request for a prominent position, the new prime minister, and that's her quote, pinned me to the door and tried to kiss me. My legs shook when I left. It it repulsed me. So this is uh, the new story about, as you said, Israel's. Uh, just to remind our listeners, he was he served multiple in multiple uh, in multiple posts in uh, in the Israeli governments. Most prominent as a prime minister and as a president. Yeah, but in Jamal, Israel. But let's let's really talk about it when. When the apartheid regime of Israel was facing international condemnation, either because they were killing Palestinians or murder or, you know, whatever, whatever horrific thing that the Israeli regime was doing, who would they bring out to calm the, the tension and speak to the world press community? They would always bring out Shimon Peres. Yeah, he was the Shimon. guy, he was the guy that would kind of say, Hey, everything's fine. Listen, do you know how many American journalists and British journalists and others, I saw them when they were talking with him, all like Gaga, going, interviewing him and right. praising him. How many interviews have you seen on CNN? How many features they've had about him? Now, not a single one. And this story now it's 24 hours. We know stories last 24, 48 hours. That, that will be good. In the, in the news cycle, mention this story. And I'm not asking them to mention it in the same vigor. They used to drool all over his achievements sure. and how grandfatherly and wise and, 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 and worldly he was. Not a single one mentioned it. Well, here's the thing, Jamal, that will be interesting. It's never just one. It's like if you find one cockroach, you know that there are many others, right? So my feeling is if Shimon Peres did this to one person, there's chances are he did it to many other women. And maybe this will give other women the opportunity to speak out about the harassment that they experience. So we, we can only hope that if there are, that they will, they will feel like this gives them an opportunity to speak to the uh, sexual assaults that they experienced with Mr. Grandfather. Well, on this note, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download all our shows. They're right there for you for free. Download them for free. We'll see you next week. See you next week. 